Thank you, Madam President. Um, you are admired throughout our family all around the world. And um, my appreciation for you just went up again. And um, tomorrow it'll go even higher. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. There's a topic, and while I'm at it, I, I want to thank the pastor of this esteemed congregation for the privilege of occupying the pulpit. We see you, sir, and hear you and enjoy you, and thank God for what you're doing. I have been thinking um, quite a bit about this assignment and have chosen to root these thoughts in Isaiah 21, verses 12 and 13. But before I read that, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we do adore you and we do thank you for this special day in all of our lives, but especially the lives of these graduates and their families. And we pray now as we address the Word and share that your Holy Spirit will be our teacher and speaker in Jesus' name, amen. The topic, eternal mourn, eternal mourn. He calls me out of seer, watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? And the watchman said, The morning comes, the morning comes, and also the night. Mention is made throughout Scripture of the high walls that fenced in ancient townships and capitals. These walls were not only high, they were thick and broad, so thick as to protect against the assault of enemies, and so broad as to allow their guards to patrol on horseback and even in chariots. These guards, some mobile and some stationary, were assigned in shifts or watches. The night shifts, more dangerous than the day, were segmented as the early watch beginning at sunset, the middle watch that followed, and the morning watch that concluded at dawn. During the long night of darkness, the query passed along from one station to another was, Watchman, what of the night? What of the night? It was their anxious way of asking, Are you okay over there? Is everything all right over here? Any sign of the enemy? Watchman, what of the night? The question of the inquirer identified by Isaiah as a visitor from Edom was quite commonplace. But his riddle-like answer was not. It is a statement that has challenged 
unlettered saints and learned scholars throughout the centuries. What could the watchman possibly have meant? The morning cometh, and also the night. The morning comes seems to suggest confidence that the worst of darkness dangers were past and daylight imminent. But by adding also the night, by tacking that on, the watchman seems either genuinely concerned about the future or wishing to confuse the Edomite, intentionally obscure. Scripture doesn't provide a clear-cut interpretation of the watchman's mysterious response. But exploration beneath the surface reveals a treasure trove of ideas and possibilities that I think speak to all of us, but especially to you who are about to leave these hallowed halls. The first is a reminder of the reoccurring or sequential cycles of life. In this interpretation, we hear the watchman saying, friend, the answer to your question is that in just a little while, the sun's rays will chase away the darkness, the birds will sing, the shopkeepers will throw open their windows and doors, and the streets will become alive with traffic once again, and the lilting voices of happy children will be heard in the air. The morning comes, but it will not last, for inevitably, irreversibly, it will be followed again by the darkness and dangers of frightful night. This cycle reminds us of the sequential offerings, graduates, of life itself. The beauty and strength of womanhood and manhood that you now possess are not permanent. It is nature's decree that your present prowess will surely give way to the debilities of old age if you're fortunate to live that long. We who have lived our threescore years and ten, and some of us plus more, have come to understand Solomon's remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, and they can be evil, as a warning to sobriety before it is too late, before the sinews of one's extremities grow taut with time, before the cords of wasteful acts harden into unbreakable habit. We cannot, you will not tarry at noonday. You cannot hold back the sunset of the coming years. Your present morning of privilege will inexorably be followed by the night of diminished mobility and fading opportunity. As in nature's reoccurring certainty, so in life's fixed reality, the morning comes, but also unfailingly, the crippling rigors of oppressive night. A second window into the words of the watchman speaks not to the sequential flow of night and day or day and night, but to their simultaneous existence. In this view, day and night do not follow each other, but rather function concurrently. And if you have not learned already, 
you will find that in a very real sense, day and night, sunlight and shadow, hope and hardships do exist in each of our lives. We do not live in zones of either or. We do not function with undiluted pain or unmitigated joy. Our happiest days are soiled by sickness, stained by fractured relationships, disrupted by news of comrades fallen and of loved ones stricken, and of other dire circumstances that have befallen friends and family. Nehemiah, whose signal triumphs were gained while confronting Sanballat's attempts to derail his efforts, Daniel, whose dedicated service in the king's palace was dogged by defamation and threats upon his life, Paul, who while sacrificing mightily for God had a thorn in the flesh, and our Lord himself, who every step of his journey here below was hounded and harassed by the forces of evil, all speak to the fact that in addition to our surviving the pestilence that walketh in darkness, we must also conquer amidst the arrows that fly by day. And you will find this relationship is true in our institutional endeavors as well where the blessings of increased sales, higher census, growing memberships, greater enrollments, and often blessings we did not expect are accompanied by internal distractions as member disaffection and employee discomfort and student dissatisfaction and posturing and politicking that lessen our rejoicing. And then there are those external demographics that strain and stain the bottom line. The natural disasters and national upheavals, exigencies that we do not conjure and cannot control. If the truth be told, as in our daily lives, so in our corporate strivings, the watchman's words ring true. The morning comes, and also not just after, but with it the disturbing distractions of wearisome night. A third perspective on the watchman's reply speaks to neither the sequential nor simultaneous, but to the causative association of day and night. As was the case with Elijah, who after boldly confronting the panting, posturing prophets on Mount Carmel, fled in mortified fear, downcast and discouraged. Ellen White comments, but a reaction as frequently follows high faith and glorious success was pressing upon Elijah. He had been exalted to Pisgah's top. Now he was in the valley. Those standing, and remember this, those standing in the forefront of the conflict will frequently feel a reaction when the pressure is removed. Despondency may shake the most heroic faith and weaken the most steadfast will. Prophets and Kings 161 and 174. Which is to say that all of us 
young and old, raw recruits and experienced veterans in the cause of God have in our DNA the tendency for letdown after buildup, depression after accession, Elijah-like cave dwelling after mountaintop exhilaration. The morning comes, but I warn you, remember and be prepared to deal with it. After it lurks the dispiriting doubts of foreboding night. And the causative relationship is evident in our societal arrangements as well. The intellectual paralysis that marked the dark ages was unlocked by the end time burst of knowledge foretold in Daniel 12.4. But as surely as the misuse and abuse of the morning sun results in blistered skin and blinded eyes, so surely has the misuse and abuse of scientific light resulted in societal woe. Witness the sunlight of atom splitting that has brought us the night of nuclear stockpiling and warfare. The intellectual conquest of cyberspace gave us television and computers and cell phones and iPads and the rest. But in the possession of evil persons has filled our screens in our homes and hands with nonstop violence and vulgar, sordid pornography and seemingly eradicable cyber crimes, all contributing to the political chaos and ethical drought enveloping society today. See how the genius that gave us freedoms of speech and assembly long cherished by this nation has, in the hands of unscrupulous persons, eventuated in the evil ironies of license to public vulgarity but laws against public prayer. Wide freedom to purchase weapons of warfare but narrow regulations for the purchase of health care. Protection for the display of racial hatred but prohibition against the display of the Ten Commandments. In this regard, the watchman's reply is reminder of our fall from Eden itself and that the fact is the morning comes but by its abuse the untold terrors of darkened night. But the primary lesson that I wish to give you today or emphasize adds to the sequential concurrent and causative meanings the idea of drastically different fates. In this perspective, the unbelieving Edomian is not inquiring in genuine concern, but in snide derision of Israel's apparent vulnerability. He is, in fact, taunting the watchman. How is it for you and your family? He's asking. You who claim to be the true descendants of Abraham, how is it that you, the chosen, are so often frozen with fear of enemies without and cowering because of dissensions within? Where amidst your struggles and troubles do you find evidence of your claim to prophetic identity? What of the lukewarm Laodicean condition of your churches? The congregationalism creep and the remnant identity leak blurring your distinctiveness. 
Whatever happened to the come out of her my people cry of the fourth angel of Revelation 18, 4, once so prominently heard in your pulpits, now so seldom observed? What of the division and dissension in your ranks? The troublesome divide regarding creationism and Trinitarianism and alternative sexuality, the ordination of female pastors, the persistent strain of perfectionism, and which administrative units within the church structure are really viable. And watchmen, very notably, what of the host of youth annually defecting from your ranks and the flanks of your higher education graduates who drift into anonymity? Some because of belief eroded by secularism and others who demand hardwired certitude for their confidence and who since proof is not available to faith, as one author put it, find the very lightness of the fabric of faith too heavy a garment to wear. Further, watchmen, what have you to say? about the disingenuous reporting of your congregations and conferences that permit your general conference to claim an inflated world membership. And watchmen, any sign of the showers of latter rain, Holy Ghost power to replace, as you often sing, the mercy drops round you that are falling? In Watchmen, how do you explain the lot of those believers who once sang about the golden morning soon to pierce the dawn? But they, in turn, have fallen in line with the 2,000-year-long of expectant saints now resting in their tombs. Tell me, trusty watchman. Tell me, what of the night of their long and lengthening slumber? Well, might we in this vein ask ourselves, indeed, fellow watchmen, indeed, what of the night? What of the eternal morn, the end of chronology and dawn of eternity introduced in the garden at the scene of the crime? The promise that Adam received and Enoch believed that Job treasured and Daniel measured and Isaiah portrayed and Zephaniah relayed, that Zechariah foretold and Joel extolled, that Ezekiel lamented and Malachi presented, that Peter proclaimed and Paul explained, that Jude revealed and John unsealed, that sorrowing Martha projected and the dying thief accepted. And most of all, that Jesus, who gave the original promise in Eden, solemnly affirmed when in human garb he vowed, if I go, I will come again. That promise, which holds equal status in the name Seventh-day Adventist, a name which, like an arrow from the Lord's quiver, will wound the transgressor of God's law and lead to repentance, volume 1, page 224, has identified inspired and enthused this people, this church, since our prophetically ordained beginnings. But 152 years have passed since 1865, and we are still here in this land of darkness. 
This land in which mothers are microwaving their babies and fathers are executing their children and children their parents. A land of mass murderers and rank hedonism and growing terrorism and whose most exalted chambers are inhabited by godless professors and Me Too confessors and characterized by political malfeasance and ethical malevolence and judiciary malpractice. Tell us, the scoffers cry, tell us, you hopeful, longing watchmen in Zion, what of society's wretched and worsening night? The morning comes, we stoutly respond. We believe these darkest hours but precursor to the coming dawn and will not stop believing hoping, longing, trusting that he will come, not at a time consistent with our earnest but limited perspectives, but rather at a time consistent with his broad universal purposes in the plan of salvation. That hope keeps us. That faith holds us. And we would rather die with an endless hope than live with a hopeless end. We believe that whether in Paul's words we wake or sleep, he that shall come will come, that it will be consistent with the prophet's declaration of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, a day of climatic and contrasting fates, a day of good news and bad news, bad news for the wicked because it brings them doom and destruction, but good news for God's people because the weeping endured for earth's long night of sin will then give way to the joys of eternal morn. That prospect, graduates, identified by Paul as the blessed hope, is not our main incentive to holiness. The Savior's sacrificial life and death occupies that distinction. But it is a primary reason we Christians can face life's challenges without opiates or other manufactured stimulation. I have a friend who always answers the phone, good morning. Morning or evening, noon or midnight, sunshine, rain. His greeting is always, good morning. <laughs> and for some time, I attributed to him a curious uh, humor sense of humor or state of mind until he explained that no matter what the circumstances, his confidence in God's promises for the future as well as the present make him feel that it is always morning in his heart. Such faith is undergoing trials with the mantra of David who wrote of having a song in the night, Psalm 30 verse 5, it is to refuse to become downcast by tragedy, intimidated by treachery, made hostile by injustice, disheartened by one's own failures, made cynical by the inconsistencies of the brethren or of others, of anybody, or made spiritually lax because of apparent delay. But of course, the primary challenge to optimism about life is the ever present specter of death. It is that inevitability that led millions to swoon to the lyrics of the songstress who summed up life with the song, Is That All There Is? 
and it led one pundit to type life as the cruel interruption of the peaceful state of non-existence. And another to describe life as but a biological incident with 100% mortality. And what is the antidote for such pessimism? It is rejecting the nay-nay and accepting the yay-yay option to life that Paul assumes in the first chapter of his second letter to the Corinthians. It is clinging to faith which cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10, 14. It is living in assurance resulting from daily diligence in prayer and study of Scripture. And that's the only way you're going to cling to that hope. The only way you're going to keep it from eroding. And especially clinging to those portions that illumine the righteousness of Christ. And why emphasis on the gift of Christ's righteousness? Because it clarifies how, while our relative perfection makes heaven happy, only Christ's absolute holiness makes heaven happen. Why? Because it is the sure cure for spiritual despondency and the proven antidote for all self-righteousness. Why? Because it unpacks the declaration of Hebrews 10:14 that by one man's sacrifice, we who are being sanctified are already perfected. Meaning, because of his robe, though I am still climbing, I am already covered. While I am yet pursuing, I am already protected. While I am yet ascending in my spiritual experience, I am already accepted. Because I am covered. Why? Because it sheds light on the revelation of Steps to Christ, pages 57 and 58, that our characters are not judged by occasional good deeds and bad deeds, but by the tendency, by the trajectory of our experience. And because it makes all the more attractive the earnest hope of the aging apostle who said he wished to be found in judgment, not having his own righteousness, but that of Christ. Philippians 3.9. Why? Because meditation upon the price that Jesus paid to provide us his gift, the gift of his covering perfection, meditation upon that price, his lonely life and degrading death stimulates as no other focus surrender to him in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Had he, had, not, had he not hidden his glory when he came into our world, had he not veiled his divinity with our humanity, had he not covered his majesty with our mortality, we would have been incinerated by his presence. There were times when, as answering Satan's final temptation on the mount, when cleansing the temple, when confronting the posse in Gethsemane, when responding to feckless Pilate as to whether he was the Son of God, that the human shield could not contain the God within, and a modicum of his glory leaked through, frightening and at times felling those about. 
He conducted his life by the rules and the powers of humanity, but he healed and stilled the storms and raised the dead by his unseen powers of the Godhead. It was because of the God within that wherever he went, disease dissolved, demons departed, death dissipated, and darkness disappeared. His very presence infused humanity with radiating, regenerating beams of hope and health. It is recorded that even those upon whom his shadow fell were delivered from mental disease and physical ill. But they wanted groceries, not grace. They wanted materials, not mercy. They wanted retaliation, not repentance. Deliverance from Roman rule, not from their ruinous sins. Relief from physical tribulation, but not from moral turpitude. Isaiah 9-2 projected them as a people who would be walking in darkness. Matthew 4-16 witnessed to an even lower state, a people who sat in darkness, seeing a great light and comprehending it not. The beloved John diagnosed their malady as loving darkness rather than the light. And for that reason, they killed him. They killed him. And when they locked him in Joseph's borrowed burial place, it was night. Not only in the tomb, but throughout the universe. Holy angels and beings on unfallen worlds gasped at the sight. Their leader had fallen. Their commander was down. It had been night in their hearts as they watched him agonize in Gethsemane, night as he was dragged through his unfair trials, night as he hung bleeding helplessly spread-eagled on the cross, and now as he lay still in the tomb, it was for them the darkest of nights. How could it be, they queried, the death of him come to conquer death, the physical demise of the one sent to eradicate material decay. The seeming putrefaction of the one ordained to end sin's ruinous effects. Watchmen, what say ye of the sinless one dying like a common criminal hung between thieves on the highest of the crosses, signifying him as the guiltiest of them all? What say ye, holy watchmen? What say ye of the victim's refusal to defend himself and the disciples' defection and the father's rejection? of Satan busily stirring up the crowd and the father silently watching in the cloud, of the beaten, broken, battered, breathless body of the Son of Man wrapped in the clothing of the dead. Watchmen, what say ye of the night? And the answer, he died, but he didn't stay dead. He swallowed death, but death could not swallow him. He took in death, but death did not take in him. It was ingested, but not digested. He slept in death, but death did not sleep in him. Flesh that had not sinned did not sour. There was no putrefaction. All that comprise the life and intelligence of Jesus remain with his body in the tomb. Volume 3, 203 and 4. His blood stopped flowing, but decomposition never got going. Right on time, a nerve twitched in his brain, 
and the blood moved from the superior and inferior vena cava of his heart into his lungs where it was oxygenated and pumped back into his heart into the aorta and diffused through the body striking his brain and he awakened to reunite with the divine Jesus who had been confidently waiting while he was quietly resting. He had come down into our world, all God wrapped up in humanity. Now he was prepared to return to glory. The roles reversed. All humanity engulfed in transcendent divinity. And that is not all that was reversed. Death was reversed from an inescapable curse to an excised malignancy. Sin from an unconquerable tyrant to a defeated foe. The grave from an inescapable prison to a temporary holding ground. History from a tale of helpless confusion to a showcase of wondrous redemption. And time from E.C., endless chronology to B.I., the tragic but brief interruption between eternity past and eternity future. The light that accompanied his exit from the tomb was the Father's finished evaluation, his total validation, his unqualified approval, the full and complete and perpetual accreditation of all aspects of his ministry, the confirmation of Romans 5.10 that reconciled, that is forgiven by his blood, and saved, that is covered by his righteous life, we are even now. We, as poor as we are spiritually, physically, as weak and mortal as we are, we are no longer prisoners of darkness, but we are citizens of eternal dawn. Your diplomas, class, issued in a few hours, will read variously, but your deployment is the same. You are all called to be, in biblical terminology, watchmen, with papers decreed by providence, authenticated by prophecy, signed with the blood of the Lamb. You are leaving equipped and empowered to share with your clients, your patients, your students, your members, your audiences, your customers, your readers, your neighbors, your children, the good news that just ahead, beyond the dread of dark and night, is eternal morn. I trust that event will occur. I trust that event will occur in your lifetime. But should it not, and the sunset of old age as it has for my generation, force thought of awakening at the trumpet sound rather than seeing the cloud the size of a man's hand. In other words, from deathless ascension to glad resurrection, should that occur, your citizenship will be secured in that land of fadeless day where sparkles a city foursquare with high walls of jasper and gates of pearl, 
whose angelic sentinels welcome the saved, where there will be no night for the Lamb of God, the source of all energy, the fountain of universal luminance, will reign, and where there shall be not an ill nor pill, not a tear nor tear, no health shots and no blood clots, no infections and no injections, no paralysis and no dialysis, no aching backs and no heart attacks, no amnesia and no anesthesia, no pacemakers and no undertakers, no terminal pains and no funeral trains, but rather there in that land of eternal morn with the tree of life and the author of life Eternity without infirmity, utopia with no myopia, society with no psychiatry, paradise with no parasites, eternal life without pain and strife, where the former things of life will not be remembered nor brought to mind, and the Lamb whose life and death made it all possible will be the eternal object of our unending praise, to which I say, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen and amen. Now, class, do you join me? This old warrior come to give you a lift today. Do you join me? in this hope, in this expectation, and response to his call. If so, class, would you stand with me now while we pray? Dear Father, here are your children. Once again, we reconsecrate them to you. We ask that they shall experience joy that they shall experience and know the blessings of the morning, that your sunlight of grace shall ever shine upon and about them. And if and when they walk through the darkness, even the valley of the shadow of death, they may look ahead to the great and eternal morn soon to come. And may they have the courage, the understanding, the faith, and the courage to never stop until thou shalt come a call, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.